0: This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 4th, 2020.
1: Coming up, we talk with David Owens, author of Volume Control, a look into the science of hearing and the remarkable new technologies that can help us hear better. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: Computer modeling of espresso brewing. New research combining computer simulations and experiments challenges what we all think we know about brewing espresso. Coffee experts and snobs agree on one thing. There is a lot of variability in espresso shots. People blame this on the human factor. Scientists wanted to test this and find out the real source of variability. They reported their results online last week in the journal Matter. Conventional wisdom holds that using very finely ground coffee beans results in better extraction and better espresso. Finer greens means more surface area and more dissolution. You mean the fine grain I've been using is not the key? No, but it's complicated. First, what the scientists did... They set up, set up their mathematical model based on transporting solubles through a granular bed. They independently altered key variables, grind setting or the size of grain, water pressure, flow rate, coffee dose amount, and extraction kinetics. In running simulations and brewing shots, they found that using finer grains is better, but only up to a point. With the finest grounds, there is some clogging because very small particles wedge in the gaps between other particles. Clogging means that hot water extracts less coffee than when filtered through slightly coarser grains. And so what exactly does clogging have to do with variability? Well, clogging also means uneven water flow. This results in coffee that is oversampled in some parts while missing other parts. This is what they think is the source of inconsistent flavors. Overextracted extracted coffee tastes bitter, but under-extracted coffee tastes a little sour. So an unclogged, unclogged coffee bed with a slightly coarser grain gives less variability and better taste. But there's one other thing. Oh no,
1: it's more complicated than I thought. What's no, that? No, this
0: is easy. <laughs> uneven, flow, uneven flow through the coffee bed also wastes coffee. So using 25% less coffee and a slightly coarser grain size optimizes the taste and reduces variability. The researchers partnered with the cafe in Eugene, Oregon to test the strategy, and they were able to get better results with 15 grams of coarser grounds rather than the usual 20 grams of very fine grounds. Have you actually tested this espresso? Unfortunately, no, I wish. I haven't been to this Oregon cafe and I have not wanted to hold up the long line of people behind me when I'm ordering. So I'd have to dictate to a barista how to grind the coffee and I'm not willing to do that. Hmm, I might.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, On another front, Syria has been in the news for using a deadly nerve agent against enemy soldiers, as well as civilians. These are chemicals like sarin, which was used in the terrorist attack in the Tokyo subway in 1995. If victims aren't treated immediately, convulsions or even brain damage and death can ensue. Last week, the U.S. Army announced that they have developed a gene therapy in mice that provides long-lasting protection against nerve agents. This strategy could theoretically be adopted for human soldiers, but at this point, the risks are unclear.
0: What exactly are nerve agents? Well, nerve agents
1: are chemicals known broadly as organophosphates. They block an enzyme that breaks down a neurotransmitter that activates muscles. Too much of that neurotransmitter will then build up, which can cause muscle spasms, difficulty breathing, and sometimes death.
0: Yikes. So how is this treated?
1: Well, the treatments that are now available work by blocking receptors for that neurotransmitter. So, if they're blocked, then it can't produce those toxic effects. But one alternative solution was tested in rodents. The lab animals were injected with the human enzyme that breaks down the nerve agent. This approach has several drawbacks, however. First, large quantities of the unstable enzyme would have to be produced and stored near conflict areas. Not very likely. Second, the human immune system will break down and eliminate foreign proteins, such as that enzyme, even if they are beneficial. So the Army Medical Research Institute of Chemical Defense took a different approach. They used a harmless virus as a carrier to transport the DNA instructions for making that enzyme into the liver cells of mice. Mice injected with this concoction soon had high blood levels of the synthetic enzyme, which remained stable for the five months of the study. The rodents then survived nine injections of different nerve agents that killed untreated animals.
0: Nine injections of nerve agents. That's a huge dose. Were the mice affected at all?
1: The gene therapy didn't cause any harm to the mice. The animals did make antibodies against the human protein, indicating that their immune system did see it and respond to it, but sufficient amounts of the enzyme persisted to protect the mice. The researchers say the therapy could protect soldiers, first responder medical staff, and military dogs, and also protect farm workers that are at risk of being exposed to those organophosphate pesticides. These are less toxic than nerve agents, but can cause similar health effects at high doses.
0: What are possible effects in humans?
1: Well, in people, the gene therapy is likely to provoke a strong immune response. It's not clear if this would blunt its effectiveness or cause severe health effects. People getting the therapy might even make antibodies against their own enzyme, which the body uses to process harmful cholesterol, and thus they could end up with an elevated risk of heart disease. And so far, no one has asked soldiers if they want to be genetically engineered. Yeah. (laughs) This study was published last week in Science Translational Medicine. sense of hearing makes it easy to connect with the world and the people around us. Yet many people take their ears for granted, and eventually most of us start to go deaf. David Owen, who's a staff writer for The New Yorker, explores the auditory system and the many implications of hearing and hearing loss in his new book, Volume Control. Welcome to the show, David Owen. You just came out with a really fascinating new book, Volume Control, on the topic of hearing loss and what to do about it. But before we start talking about the book, I think you have a personal connection to the topic, and that's what got you interested. Is that right?
2: Yes, it uh, it is. It's part of what got me interested. I have uh, tinnitus, which is the the kind of the phantom ringing uh, in the ears. It's not really in your ear. It's in your brain. Um, I had that for about 12 years, and I have a little bit. Of, I'm 65, so I have a little bit of hearing loss. And uh, my grandmother, but I always remembered her as having, you know, for as long as I knew her, she had terrible hearing problems. Because when she was uh, a teenager a century ago, a suitor took her duck hunting on a uh, on water near Austin, Texas, where she grew up, and steadied his shotgun by resting the barrel on her shoulder. Oh no! Uh, and when he fired, he not only missed the duck, but also really uh, seriously deafened her. And so, you know, uh, almost every memory I have of her is of her, you know, not hearing what I was saying or adjusting her hearing aid or the terrible feedback, which she often couldn't hear. So,
1: And there wasn't much to be done for it in her day.
2: No, the the hearing aid helped, but, uh, you know, her hearing got steadily worse and uh, the, um, you know, she had peculiarities. She we were talking to her on the phone. You had to shout, of course. And then, um she, she said goodbye. She hung. She she ended phone calls just by hanging up. You never knew when it was going to come, and I think that was uh, possibly deafness related. Um, so, um, but it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely a, a big part of my memories of her.
1: Right, right. Well, you start the book with an overview of the biology of the system, and um, I don't want to spend too much time on that. But briefly, for the listeners, can you explain? How do we hear things?
2: It's kind of amazing that uh, an audiologist at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary told me if you place, you know, stick one finger in your right ear, index finger, and then point the other index finger straight into your right eye, where those two lines meet is where your inner ear is. And it's tiny. um, Almost always in illustrations, it's magnified uh, so that you can see it. But the the cochlea, the the sort of the the ears... um, the critical element in this auditory infrastructure is just like a little bit larger than a miniature chocolate chip. It's just a tiny little thing. Uh, and it's incredibly delicate, incredibly sensitive, and yet, as is often the case with precious things, we don't take nearly enough care of it. Um, and as a consequence, we, we often uh, you know, damage our hearing. Um, I think that young people tend to think of hearing problems as an old people problem, and you're certainly more likely to see it in old people, but it's an old people problem that begins when we're young. Uh, most of the bad sound-related things that I did in my ears, I did in my teens and 20s, and I think that's true of most people.
1: Right, and we'll circle around back to this because there's some new research that you touch on at the end of the book that relates to this, but getting back to the hearing system itself, let's say, you know, when that gun went off on your grandmother's shoulder, and guns seem to be a really common cause of hearing loss in our society, what happens in that inner ear area that causes the hearing loss?
2: Well, there these tiny sensory cells inside the inner ear, way inside, very small, so small that that even with an electron microscope they're hard to see, and they uh they're called hair cells and, and i think people tend to picture them as just like the hair that sticks out of old men's ears but they're much vastly tinier than that and that when la- loud sounds can destroy them sometimes temporarily and it can also do damage to the the sort of the the nerve connections that those hair cells plug into and uh the it doesn't always take a whole lot of exposure to cause those That kind of damage, and uh, you can lose—I believe it's—you know—you can lose eighty percent of your hair cells before the loss shows up in a standard hearing test. If you go to your audiologist and have an audiogram made,
1: oh, that's amazing!
2: Um, It is amazing, and we don't, (laughs) given how important this sense is, uh, we don't take nearly enough care of it.
1: And I was intrigued to read too that. We know that is science knows a lot more about how the visual system works than about how the auditory system works.
2: That's true, and it's um it's it's starting. People are starting to know a whole lot. One reason is it's a kind of an okay boomer reason. There's this huge uh, demographic bulge of <laughs> right. people who are my <laughs> age who are having hearing problems, and so we're uh, in addition to causing many of the world's problems, we're also an immense marketing force, and so there are lots of people interested in understanding what causes hearing loss, what might reverse it, uh, which until very recently has, hasn't has even been a possibility, and then how to help people who have lost hearing to regain uh, some ability to to. Um, connect with other people.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about that. That's a really exciting area that, uh, again, I knew nothing about. Some of these fixes, like, of course, I've seen the hearing aids and, and some of my friends actually have the the smaller miniature hearing aids. But what's going on, like, with cochlear implants? And I was amazed to read that those little tiny bones in the inner ear that help transmit sounds, just like a knee replacement, you can get replacements for those little tiny bones.
2: Right, right. If it's the one kind of hearing loss, uh, it's one kind of hearing loss. It's actually can be corrected surgically. There are these the three smallest bones in the body are in the middle ear, and there are uh, various um, ailments that cause them to seize up or to otherwise uh, uh, stop functioning. And they can actually, you know, you can do a uh, a a little tiny, tiny Teflon prosthetic that works just as well uh, as the bones that were there if you have that kind of hearing loss. And there are starting to be one thing that's been frustrating to hearing researchers for uh, for forever is that uh, mammals do not regenerate uh, hair cells, the hearing sensory cells. Uh, reptiles do, uh, but mammals don't. And um, but there are some indications now that researchers are finding ways to uh, to um, stimulate uh, cells inside the inner ear to produce new hair cells and to produce them in the right places and with the, performing the right functions. Uh, and if that turns out to be the case, there will be actually be, for the first time, uh, ways to reverse this kind of hearing loss, the central neural hearing loss, the hearing loss caused by damage to the sensory cells or the nerve connections that they, that they hook into.
1: Yeah, that would be really exciting because it sounds like that's the source of most of the hearing loss that occurs in many of us because of our bad habits when we're young.
2: Right, most acquired hearing loss. The, Sort of life-related hearing loss is is caused by damaging those sensory cells. There are other kinds too. There are people who are born deaf, and that there's that a, a genetic problem. Or, a, or and there are also people. I have um, several friends who have undergone chemotherapy for cancer of one kind or another, and the standard chemotherapy drugs can cause hearing loss. Uh, uh, cancer uh, d- uh, doctors don't always tell patients that, that a potential consequence of their treatment is is deafness or partial deafness. Uh, I think most cancer patients would view the, the trade-off as a reasonable one, but they don't always know that it's coming. They're surprised that they, uh, you know, finish chemotherapy and then need hearing aids on both sides.
1: Right. It would be nice to know that in advance. So, what what kind of hearing loss is um, correctable with a cochlear implant?
2: Cochlear implants are used in people who've who've lost all or almost all of their their hearing. And what a cochlear implant does, it's a ti- it's a tiny wire that is threaded into this infinitesimally small uh, organ inside the head, and it conveys signals directly from a hearing aid-like device to the nerves, the auditory nerves inside the brain. So it bypasses all the uh, existing infrastructure of sound detection. It bypasses the eardrum and the little bones in the inner ear and, and the sensory cells in the cochlea, and it transmits signals, electric signals, directly to these nerves. Um, I think people who have not undergone uh the surgery will often assume that it just snaps back it gives people perfect hearing uh but it doesn't it's a it's a uh, it's it's it it doesn 't sound the way sound does to a hearing person but it 's an extraordinary uh accomplishment and it was described to me by uh, one surgeon as the the most remarkable Prosthetic device of a sense that's that's ever been invented.
1: Yeah, it sounds pretty amazing that just putting a wire in there can can actually substitute for that remarkably complicated system that feeds into the ear, feeds into the yeah, brain, rather.
2: And, and not everybody has a has the the sort of the you know the auditory infrastructure that can that can accommodate it. Uh, maybe the nerves are too too small, or there's been other damage. But for many people, it's life-changing for people who it does work for. And I I went to an appointment uh, with an audiologist of a woman. She was going back for her one-week checkup after having her cochlear implant turned on. And she had a super powerful hearing aid on one side and uh, the implant on the other side. And um, even though she was very hearing impaired, I never would have known that she had a hearing problem if I hadn't known why we were both there.
1: Right, right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned hearing aids because that was my next question. And I have to say, I learned so much about hearing aids. The technology is really amazing and it's getting better and better all the time. So can you explain the new technology to us, How what what these little devices in your ears are doing?
2: They're, uh, they, uh, they increase the, the gain, they increase the volume of sounds in particular frequencies, and they adjust them in different ways uh so they tend to amplify soft sounds more than loud ones, and they as they should and they there are some frequencies that they aren't good at um uh increasing that but they they make it possible for people to hear better um if they have uh partial hearing loss and see people are often i think the um uh, there's a, you hear many stories of somebody who gets hearing aids and then puts them in a drawer and never takes them out again, because they feel frustrated with them when they start. You you ha- when you get hearing aids, you have to retrain your brain. It's a new way of hearing. Uh, I have glasses. I've had glasses since I was a kid, and when I first put them on, it was it was you know transformative. I could see things that I hadn't been able to see. Hearing aids is different. You know if you've if you've lost the ability to hear sounds in certain frequencies, you, you never get that back. But you can. You can increase your ability to hear what you can still hear, and then you can train your brain to uh, draw information from the, these new signals that it's getting.
1: So for for some of us that, like you, are just getting older, and we haven't really, we don't have this damage to the ear that causes hearing loss, but we are, we're gradually losing the ability to hear certain frequencies, it sounds like there's new technology that isn't exactly a hearing aid, but more of... Um, an amplification device that can be worn internally. And that was, i had never heard of any of these things. So could you talk a little bit about those?
2: Yeah, sure. And and a hearing aid is an amplification device. I have a pair of headphones made by Bose. They're called Hearphones. And I control them with an app on my phone. They let me, uh, they're like Bose's um, noise-canceling headphones. I can make loud places quieter. But I can also use them to make quiet places louder. And I can adjust, 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 the 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 gain and the, the canceling to make the hearing uh, work better, and they're especially useful in in a place where many older people have difficulties, and younger people too. And uh, the example people always give is restaurants. Uh, it's hard to hear in, in crowded restaurants, uh, and it's because there are lots of people talking. You can't um, draw out and isolate the sounds that you want to hear, and uh, these help you do it. Um, and and they have. The same processor that's in hearing aids, uh, but they have a bigger battery, which supports um, more robust, a more robust version of Bluetooth, and they have bigger speakers and uh, bigger microphones. So the sound quality, I have found, uh, and many people find, is superior to uh, what their hearing aids give. the The downside is that they're big. You know, no, nobody doesn't know you're you're wearing them, uh, and for some people, many people, that's a big problem. Uh, I think it's it's beginning to be less of a problem. I mean, you walk down the street; everybody has something sticking out of their right, ear. People wearing right. headphones or their AirPods or or whatever. So, I think the uh, the stigma that has always been attached uh, to having hearing aids is probably uh, it's it's at least weaker than it used to be.
1: Yeah, and the price is definitely a huge differential. And it sounds like basically with these new devices like the Bose hearphones, the user is doing the adjustments via, say, an app on their phone, their smartphone, as opposed to an audiologist. And it's really that cost of uh, personalization that drives the hearing aid cost into the thousands of dollars.
2: It is. Uh, there's always been a very cozy uh, economic relationship between the, big, the six big hearing aid manufacturers and audiologists. And much of the price of a uh, Uh, of a hearing aid uh, is goes to the audiologist and when hearing aid companies talk about their customers they're not talking about people who wear hearing aids they're talking about people who sell them and so uh, if for a long time it has been possible it would have been possible to give hearing aid wearers total control over their uh you know how their uh, hearing aids sound and um uh, but it hasn't uh it hasn't been done. The hearing aid companies have resisted it, and the audiologists have resisted it. But that's that's all beginning to change. And uh, because it's changing, it's the kind of thing that's going to be uh, probably pretty confusing for a while. I mean, you're beginning to see many more advertisements for uh, hearing devices, hearing improvement devices. Uh, not all of them are much less expensive than conventional hearing aids. Uh, some of them are, so, are sort of too much uh, less expensive than conventional hearing aids to the point where you you wonder how good they can possibly be but i think that the the upshot eventually will be a much more rational market for hearing aids and for hearing treatment and for hearing improvement devices of all kinds and the uh, one result of that may be that uh, you know hearing aids will be more likely to be covered by health insurance policies or by Medicare, which they're mostly not now.
1: Right. Yeah, we can only hope so. So one other really intriguing aspect of your book was um, your coverage of the deaf culture. And again, that was really fascinating to me and something I didn't know much about. And I'm curious, have you had much of a response from that culture to your book?
2: Uh, You know, I, I went to visit, I live in Connecticut, and about an hour away from where I live is the American School for the Deaf, which was the the first uh, deaf education institution in the United States and is the place where American Sign Language was developed. Uh, and uh, it's fascinating, it's completely fascinating. It, I've, I've heard from them. They were pleased with what I'd written, but it's, I'm, I'm not sure about what the reaction is. Uh, there's some very sensitive issues among the deaf, the, the so-called capital D deaf, uh, who are people who, for whom... The inability to hear is more nearly a cultural, uh, uh, a cultural element in their lives than uh, a than a medical one. That uh, these are people who communicate by sign language, and um, uh, I think one thing that's that sort of turned that it's introduced complexity into that world is the availability of cochlear implants. And now you can uh, you can uh, you can implant a child as young as six months old uh, and give them some usable hearing and especially at that age they have their brain has the uh, enough plasticity uh to really learn how to hear uh to process sound really well and it's uh you know it's something i don't even feel qualified to talk about because there's there's so many people who have uh sensitivities about it that um i think it's hard not to offend somebody no matter what you say
1: right and i certainly don't want to do that but i do have to say it was A fascinating coverage in the book about the history of teaching um, sign language and communicating with the deaf. And it was a much more nuanced and complex history than I'd ever imagined. I mean, just for instance, your story of the um, community at Martha's Vineyard or near Martha's Vineyard that um, consisted of a high number of deaf people. And they developed their own way of communicating.
2: They did, and uh, my wife and I've gone to the. I've gone for forty-five years, forty-five summers, and she's gone for, you know, fifty-five. And I never knew into Chilmark itself, this town where this existed, and I never knew about it. But there was a a high incidence of uh, hereditary deafness in this small, isolated community, and uh, like four percent of the population. And uh, because every family was affected. Uh, people just accommodated it. It wasn't viewed as a handicap. They developed a form of sign language. Uh, even hearing, even um, hearing people uh, would often communicate uh, with one another through sign language. If there was no one deaf present, you could tell a dirty joke. Uh, <laughs> sign language fishermen could communicate from one boat to another. So it was. Um, there were no activities from which the deaf were excluded. And no uh activities that were conducted exclusively for the deaf, and so it was just you know it was a fact of life, like hair color right uh right. and people didn't necessarily even later remember who had been deaf and who had not so there was a story of a woman who said she was describing a a fierce argument that she'd had with with a neighbor, and uh then she she paused and said, "Come to think of it, you know we were probably." arguing in sign language.
1: (laughs) That's a great story. (laughs) Well, sadly, we are running out of time, and there's so much more interesting stuff in the book, so I will link to the book on our website. And thank you so much for talking to us today, David. That was David Owen. Oh, thank you. David Owen, staff writer for The New Yorker, talking about his new book, Volume Control. He covers a host of topics ranging from the anatomy and physiology of the auditory system to novel technologies for regaining and correcting hearing loss. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is me, Beth Bennett.
0: This week's show was produced by me, Angel Chang, and engineered by Beth.
1: Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from 10 years after.
0: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
1: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Moiselle Chong.